Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing a series uh, today called The Stories of Jesus, and it's a, a series taking us through some of the, the stories, the parables that Jesus taught. Um, all of them in this series happen to come from Luke's gospel. And if you, uh, you know, if you're kind of more familiar with the Bible, I, I don't want to assume that you are, um, but if you've read a little bit, you've probably noticed that this is a hallmark of Jesus' teaching, that he told a lot of stories uh, to illustrate truths about the world and about God and about us and how we fit in and all that. And, it, and it's important to, to think on that because he didn't just make statements like some teachers do, make, make propositional claims. Because making a statement, making a claim like that, conveys maybe an idea, uh, but I think we've all probably experienced the power of saying the same thing but in a different way by telling a story. And it, it engages more of us, doesn't it? Our minds and imaginations, it draws us into the story. It, we start wondering about the characters and, and the part that each of them played. And then, and then we find ourselves wondering how we fit into that. And we're, we're seeing connections here and there and all over the place. And it just triggers a lot more. So Jesus was a master storyteller. And throughout this series too, we've been looking at um, not just getting more information, right? Because sometimes I think that is our Western uh, cultural understanding of discipleship, getting more religious information in our heads. When in fact, discipleship really in, in the original meaning of the word, it just means becoming an apprentice, a learner of Jesus uh, for the goal of becoming more like him having a Jesus-shaped life in, in who we are and what we do and how we are, all, all of that. So we've been looking at not just the interesting tidbits from these stories, but how do they impact us? I mean, what's, what's the change uh, the story might be calling forth in you, in me? You know, what's the actionable truth here? Right, so we've been looking at that. So today's story is the story of uh, the Good Samaritan, or today titled the story of the Good Neighbor. And Jesus tells it in response to a question asked him by an expert of the law in seemingly a setting where Jesus had been doing some other teaching. So let's listen to that whole story now. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, 
And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Craig. Back in the 1960s, uh, there was apparently a guy named Hughes Rudd, who was a kind of famous CBS anchor man. I was born in 1969, so I don't remember him personally. Uh, but evidently, he was a no-nonsense, uh, kind of straight shooter, uh, often controversial kind of reporter. Maybe some of you remember him. He, li he lived in New York City. And in, in the late 60s, he was walking back to his apartment late one night, and he was mugged right outside of his apartment building. Listen to his experience. He lay unconscious, oh, I'm sorry, he lay conscious, eyes open, but unable to move. All he could do was moan and mumble, though he was quite lucid. Rudd lay from 2.30 until dawn at the doorstep, watching life pass by. Returning theater goers walked past him into the building. The milkman came and left. No one even stopped to see what was wrong, despite his pathetic attempts to ask for help. Can you imagine it? Fully awake, fully conscious. You just can't speak. You can't move. And the story Jesus told is as relevant today as it was back then. And it's not for those people, it's for all of us. And in, in, in the end, I'll give you the end now so you can just leave and not listen to the in-between. <laughs> in the end, it's about seeing other human beings in the way that God sees them and treating them accordingly. But to get there, we'll go through three things. The right question, the wrong question, and the right posture. So the right question. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Another question was asked by an expert in the law. That's not like a lawyer in our day. That's an expert in, in the law of God. In God's, so this guy was, an, was a professional theologian. It, the text says he stood up, so apparently Jesus had been teaching. Maybe Jesus was standing, but everybody else apparently were, 
were seated, and this, this guy stood up to question Jesus, a, a posture of challenge. And the question didn't come out of left field. It was a standard question uh, to which there would have been standard answers. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was kind of like throwing a softball to a rabbi. It was the equivalent of saying, hey, rabbi, teacher, give us your shtick. You know, how, how do you interpret the scriptures? What, what must we do? What's the greatest mandate for a human being? What, what does God really want of, of us? See, the expert in the law was hoping to smoke out Jesus' supposedly heretical views on God's wider plans for the whole world. Even though his motives were off, the teacher of the law, that is, asking Jesus about his understanding of God and the world and us and how we all fit in and how to in inherit eternal life, right? That's the right question. It's the right question for you to ask. It's the right question for me to ask. That is the place to start. What does Jesus think, right? But, but in this interaction with the expert in the law, there's more going on. The expert in the law is trying to test Jesus, but Jesus didn't take the bait. Did you see that? As he so often does, he answered the question by asking another question. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Notice what he didn't ask. He didn't say, well, what do you think? How do you feel about it? Because it's not about our thoughts or our feelings. It's about what does scripture say? What is in the law? How do you read it? And there's, there's a little bit of a chess match going on here because the expert in the law already knew how Jesus was going to respond to this because Jesus had already answered this question in previous interactions. And the expert in the law knew that, that Jesus emphasized something a little bit new. See, a good Israelite would have had the Shema or Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 5 memorized in, in their heart. And the Shema is all about loving God with your whole being. Um, but Jesus would always combine that with Leviticus 19.18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this expert in the law knew all about the, the Shema. In fact, he would have been wearing it. Did, did you know about this? Check out this picture he would have been wearing what's known as a phylactery. That's that little black box that's tied to the forehead in this picture. And that was a box that contained a miniature scroll upon which was written the Shema, these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Consider the greatest mandate for mankind by a good Jewish person. And the phylactery was a way of obeying symbolically the verses that come right after the Shema. Here they are. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. I know I don't have the picture, but could we scroll back to the picture for a second, Beth? Do you see the leather straps around the arms there? Tie them as symbols on your hands. Symbolic way of saying we are tying God's commands to our body. We're tying them. Bind them to your foreheads. Literally, tie it to your head. 
So the expert in the law knew exactly how Jesus would respond. And he literally had the Shema tied to his head just like this. That was the most important command. So he's still trying to smoke Jesus out to make Jesus say something heretical that would show that he really didn't believe in, in what the rabbis taught. So he gave Jesus Jesus' answer. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. <laughs> Do you feel it? The, the, the debate is on and so far it's not going well for the expert in the law. Right? As one commentator notes, now the expert in the law looked foolish having been, having Uh, been made to answer his own question and then being kindly told to practice the answer he had just preached. Maddening! So the expert in the law kind of pressed the conversation a little bit, pressed the fight with another question, the wrong question. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, "Uh, and who is my neighbor? This, this question telegraphed a whole mindset and, and perspective on life. See, this guy wanted to know how big the neighborhood is and thus who exactly he was commanded to love as he loved himself. He, he wanted to know who counts as his neighbor. He wanted to know who's in and who's out. He wanted to know who's us and who's them. I, I so remember my junior year in college taking a social psychology class when we talked about social boundary markers. That's a phrase, evidently. And it talks about how we human beings have a natural tendency to try to categorize things, to draw these lines that put people into this group or that group And evidently, it helps us think about the world. It's easier to interact with the world if we have these ideas of, hey, these people are over here, and these people are over here. These people are part of this group, but they're not part of this group. And then we kind of interact with them in that way. We, We have a great tendency, I would argue a sinful tendency, right? A distinct part of our sinful nature to draw lines that separate people into insiders and outsiders. And for the expert in the law, God was the God of Israel and his neighbors were other Jewish people. That was a standard interpretation by the rabbis back in that way. And I mean, flowing from the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments have, you know, the the first four, vertical relationship with God, last six, horizontal relationship with other people. The rabbis knew that was all important, but that last six really applied to just the, the Jewish community, just us. So see, he was, the expert in the law, that is, was trying to get Jesus to cross a line. Now, in answer to the question, Jesus could have made a statement. He could have said, well, everyone in the world is your neighbor. And you're to love every person with whom you have contact in the same way you love yourself. But, of course, he didn't say that. He told a story that intentionally did not answer the question, who is my neighbor? The story changed the question from who is my neighbor to 
how can I be a good neighbor? Very tricky. It's a story about taking the right posture toward other people because of faith in God, real faith in God. Here's the story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The one attacked was left half dead. So at first glance, you would probably think he was dead, much like Hugh's Rudd laying there by the apartment. Didn't look very alive. Now back in that day, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. They both would serve in the temple on a rotating basis, basis kind of a National Guard-like thing, actually. Two or three two-week stints per year, they'd go from wherever they lived in Israel to Jerusalem to serve in the temple there. So it's likely that both this priest and this Levite had completed their two-week service in Jerusalem and were heading back to Jericho where apparently they might have lived. So they'd had two weeks there. And according to the Jewish law, a person would be unclean for seven days if they touched a corpse. This from Numbers 19. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day, then they will be clean. So these two had already had two weeks away from their family. They're taking the arduous journey back home. The last thing they wanted was to be unclean for a week when they arrived home to their families. They'd have to isolate for a whole other week. You know, isolate. Wear a mask, grab some more antigen tests from Rite Aid. I mean, the whole thing. Who wants that for a whole other week? Oh, I just did the grammar thing. Did you hear what I said? A whole nether week? That's improper. Forgive me. A nether whole week. There's no such thing as a whole nether week. That's how my mind works, sorry. <laughs> so they're thinking, isolate for a week? No way! We're getting home. It's been too long. But then Jesus' story takes a dramatic twist. There, there was a common form of story used in that day. It was a three-part story that developed along predictable lines. Kind of like there was a pastor, a priest, and a rabbi, but, but not quite like it was more structured and, and more widely known. So Jesus' story started with a priest considered to be the top tier spiritually. In the story, the priest failed to love. Then next, a Levite, kind of the second tier spiritually, and in the story, the Levite failed 
to love. Now, at this point, everybody listening to the story, and remember the scene now, Jesus is probably standing over here, a bunch of people seated here, expert of the law over here. There's a little tennis match going on. Like this back, like they're, they're watching this. Everybody seated there, including the expert in the law who had questioned Jesus, would have expected the next person in line, priest, Levite. Next on the list is the common Jewish man, the average grassroots religious good guy. And I can see where this story is going, where the, where the professionals failed, the average religious good guy will succeed because, you know, the, the common Joe will certainly stop and do the right thing and, and, and love this guy. Surely that, that would be the point of the story. But the next in line is not the average good Jewish guy, but a Samaritan. So everybody seated there had the internal reaction of, wait, wait, what? That was... That was not at all what we were expecting. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans was legendary. It went back more than 400 years years, and centered on ethnic and racial purity, actually, because the Jews who had been taken to Babylon in captivity maintained their purity by not intermarrying with Babylonians, but the Jews who were not taken into captivity, because it's wholly unrealistic to take an entire people group into captivity, so there were Jews left in the land during the captivity, those Jewish people intermarried with the Assyrians and created what are the Samaritans. So the Jewish people who remain pure in Babylon come back and they view these Samaritans as complete sellouts. Dirty, unfaithful, you didn't toe the line, now you're, you know, dirty for life. In the mind of a good Jewish person, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. That was a contradiction in terms. Couldn't happen. So it would be impossible to overestimate the shock that this triggered in the minds of the people listening to this story. That Jesus introduced the Samaritan not as the villain, but as the hero who did exactly what God wanted him to do. Like, it was, this, was, this was fingernails on the chalkboard, in-your-face challenge. The Samaritan stopped and helped. The Samaritan put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn. The Samaritan paid the bill for his ongoing care. The Samaritan did the right thing. And then Jesus poses this counter-question to the one asked by the expert in the law, who is my neighbor? And and it reframes the whole discussion. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him? You notice he can't even say the word Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do just like the Samaritan. You feel this, right? It's like right in his face. And, and it gets to the real question. I mean, the question is not who's in and who's out. The question is how can I be the kind of neighbor God wants me to be? 
or in simple terms, don't ask who, just go do. Right at this point, the expert in the law had to be feeling like the kid on the debate team who just got crushed. I mean, he's thinking, what? What just happened here? It took Jesus exactly 159 words, and yeah, I counted them. It took Jesus exactly 159 words to completely dismantle me. What happened? But of course, Jesus was not at all interested in dismantling a person. God loves people, and he loves us too much to allow us to remain as we are. That's why Jesus presented the challenge to this guy. Right? Jesus was not interested in dismantling a person, but he was, and I would believe, I do believe, continues to be deeply interested in dismantling the idea that some people are in and others are out when it comes to our responsibility to love them. When asked what it means to love your neighbor, Martin Luther responded with this, it is the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. To be Christ, or to be Jesus-shaped life again, right? What Jesus is talking about here is a posture shift. It's not a change in belief. It's a change in posture. Right? He's simply asking us to love other people in the same way he loved us. And, and you can run it through the grid of your own mind. How has Jesus loved you? What has the Lord done for us? Right? He didn't just come in person, though he did do that, and that was an amazing sacrifice on his part. He didn't just teach great things, though he did, and it was amazing, stunning teachings like this little story. He didn't just walk with people in life, so important, incarnational ministry, being, being together. He, he gave himself. He gave everything on our behalf. Right? So this is, this is self-giving love, self-sacrificing action on, the behalf, on behalf of, of other people. That's what, that's what Christian love is like. See, taking the right posture toward other people begins with seeing them primarily as a creature made in the image of God, regardless of any other displeasing thing we might know about them. That's the truth, right? The next part, involves not just seeing them as a creature made in the image of God, but treating them as such. Treating them as such. I, I remember getting some great advice in seminary, and over the years, I feel like it's kind of developed in my mind and heart and my, in my own growth. And one, one of our professors said, as a pastor, you'll need to develop an unshockable ear. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. What it means is, is like when somebody tells you something, you can't go, whoa! <laughs> right? That would be bad. Uh, and, and I argue this isn't just for pastors. This is for us as Christians because we are all one of the priesthood of all believers. When someone opens their soul to you, when you have the sense that someone is sharing with you something that is precious and holy, 
even though it might be the confession of a really deep and dark sin of which you never imagined or conceived or thought even possible, the reaction is not, ugh. The reaction is, thank you for trusting me with that. That was really hard, I can tell. You know, and I'm a person who's been forgiven much. There's tons of grace. Tons of grace. Right? Like we need an unshockable ear, we need, too, to develop a kind of vision that sees through the outer appearances when we look at people and I, I don't know what the triggers are for you. I, I actually had this thought. I was trying to recall where I saw the picture. Um, but I, I saw a picture, and th- this thought came to my mind about developing the right vision, unshockable ear, that whole spirit thing. And there was a, a young man. His hair was shaved very tight, almost looked a little skinheadish, you know, really tight. Well, as I'm rubbing my hair. <laughs> um, but he had a, a nose piercing with two big studs here and some tattoo tears, you know, and he was, he had a ton of art everywhere. And to be completely honest, my internal first reaction is, this is a guy with whom I'd probably never interact or have anything in common. But I knew right away, like, I have a choice about how I'm going to view this person. Am I going to see all that external stuff first? Or am I going to see a human being created in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect for that reason alone, no matter what all the outward appearance might, uh, what I might assume it means or telegraphs or whatever, right? Got a choice. Here's, here's the command in summary form. All men and women are my neighbors, which means that I have to love everyone. In biblical terms, love is more a verb than a noun. Very important. I don't have to like everybody, but I need to love them. To love everyone means to be loving toward them, to do what love demands for everyone you come across, whether you like him or not, whether he's a Jew or he's a Samaritan. So all of this begs a very important and probably uncomfortable question. Who's your them? You know, to the expert in the law, the the Samaritan was the ultimate example of of them, the outsider, no good, blah, 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 blah. One of them, you know, one of those people, the dumb good-for-nothings who, if truth be told, the world would be better without. You've got them. I know you do because I fight it too. Who's your them? Or to put an edge on it, who for you are the most despicable human beings you can imagine? Let me, let me tell you a story about a pastor, a worship arts director, and a militant LGBTQ plus leader. Now, let, me, let me tell you a story about an elder, a deacon, and a... You fill in the blank. To get the force of what Jesus was really talking about you need to fill in the blank. And you need to sit with it for a while. 
And as you, as you do, you, you, you'll realize that the question really is not about them. It is about you. You might look super religious on the outside. You might be super religious. But if you walk past the guy who got mugged outside his apartment building, you're kind of missing the point entirely. Be the neighbor by loving people in the name of Jesus. Don't ask who, just go do. Not to gain God's favor, but out of gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus. And, and one last thing. We don't do that out of guilt. We do it out of gratitude. It's a very important movement in Scripture. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We are guilty. Guilt is not just a psychological experience. Before God, because of our sin, we are guilty. And we feel that because we are. There's grace that meets us and invites us back, right, in Jesus. That's what God has done for us on the cross. And in gratitude, we live our lives. Not to address the guilt back here because the grace addressed that. The gratitude is our response to the grace. So we all have a sinful nature, meaning sin is much more than just doing things wrong. It's more than behavior. Sinful nature talks about not just the things we do wrong, but our natural propensity to do wrong things. That's why the gospel of sin management never works. Just changing our behavior or trying to do better never works. That won't fix the problem. We need to be transformed, made new from the inside out, healed. That's what Jesus does for us. And remember the mistake the expert in the law made when he started to ask the wrong question. Did you catch the phrase that led up to that? But he wanted to justify himself. Linchpin of the whole story right there. I remember back when I was a newer believer, uh, I, I read the book of Proverbs a lot. Be before I was a person of faith, the Proverbs just seemed to make sense to me, so I read through them a couple times. And I came across this particular proverb that said this, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end leads only to death. I remember the first time I read that, I found myself wondering, what, did, what does that even mean? A, a way that seems right but leads to death? Well, that sounds kind of sinister. Like, how would I avoid that? I've come now to realize that way is the way of the expert in the law, wanting to justify ourselves, wanting to do something to fix the guilt. You see it everywhere. Every human religion in the world was birthed and established because of that instinct. Every spiritual philosophy, everything. And what makes Christianity distinct is that our, our, our faith is founded on historical claim that says this is not just a religious idea, Something happened on the timeline of history that proves that God came from his side to us to say, this is the way. You don't need all that other stuff. You can't climb the mountain up to me, so I'm going to come down to you and do everything that you need to come back to me. Friends, that's incredibly good news. That, that's the core message of the gospel, and it's the grace that God has given us in that, that empowers us to love the, the Samaritans in our lives, right? The them, 
whoever that group is, for you. He wanted to justify himself. Let's not make that mistake. Jesus justifies us. We don't. So in that sense, don't ask who, just go do with regard to loving people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. God, pour out your spirit on us. Help us grow to look more like Jesus, to be more like you, Lord, in, in everything we do, in the ways we speak, the ways we are with others, our, our presence and posture in the world. Help us, Lord, uh, to become the kingdom people that you've made us to be. Uh, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.